0: So ladies, how about that yummy dessert tonight? Is there anything better than chocolate fondue? I'm not, I don't know that there is. Thanks for being with us here tonight. If this is your first week with us or if you've been in and out of town, that's totally fine. I will run over some information in just a minute to kind of catch us up. I emailed a friend this week. She is In marketing and advertising and she is here tonight but I won't say her name and always she has these really interesting articles and facts and trends and statistics that are always really interesting to me and so I emailed her kind of on a whim and I said hey what are the facts and figures on how much money is spent on like advertising and marketing every year and she emailed me back and she said billions and billions she said I don't even know where that statistic is and if I did it would probably scare me (laughs) And it's not hard to understand, because as you check your email and stop at a stoplight, and regardless of where you go, there's a message coming to you. Apple's budget was about, advertising budget was about, I don't know, a half, a, what was it, a half a billion or something? I think it was, yeah, about a half a billion dollars. NBC paid over $3 million for one thirty-second. Add in the Super Bowl. So it's not surprising to any of us to think about the number of of messages we receive from advertisers and marketers about different kind of things we need. Purchase this, get this, whatever. We're bombarded with that a lot, aren't we? And it's not necessarily all bad. There were two specific groups of people as I was thinking about this I kind of felt bad for. And there are a lot others too. I kind of was thinking about just the advertisements I had heard or seen recently. And I thought, you know, in some times of the year especially, to be either a husband or a boyfriend, man, you are targeted everywhere you go. I was imagining all of the jewelry ads and jingles running through my head. And it kind of, I mean, like, and on top of that, you've got chick flicks which lay out these perfect romantic things. And then the advertisers are telling you you need this to be that. And I kind of felt bad for them. I mean, not that they never need to step it up, but I thought everywhere they go... (laughs) There's this standard out there of what they need to try to live up to. And it really even goes beyond just saying, hey, this might be nice. It kind of attacks their value as a person. Like, if you don't do this, you are a terrible whatever. I also thought about this. And granted, not all of them are like that. But I also thought about, like, moms and all these advertisements that you would think that you're a terrible mom if you don't buy this kind of orange juice. You know, And I kind of thought, there are advertisements out there, not all of them, that aren't just you need this, but they start to attack you and who you are and your value if you don't have or if you don't do this. As we've been studying and reading through the book of Colossians, we've been looking at the fact that Paul and Timothy are writing this letter to a group of Christians who are from what we can understand, are a pretty good group of Christians. They're not necessarily out there doing these terrible, horrible things. And we've been talking about the good life that Christ wants them to have, but different things that can tempt them away or can be hard in light of their culture. We've looked at um, who Christ is and how sometimes different world religions can attack that and try to pull us away from the life that we have in Christ We looked last week at leaders and how leaders at times can lead us away from the message and the hope that we have in Christ and how we need to kind of be wise to those things. And I think there are also a lot of messages that we get as women that are saying to us, even as Christian women, you're not enough. You need this or to do that or to be that or to whatever, to be enough. And... As we study this passage in Colossians, we're going to see that Paul is addressing some specific things that have come up, different things that are being told to this group of Colossian believers that are saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you don't need to do this, here do this, you need this to be enough or to be whatever. They are hearing some messages that are kind of attacking who they are and what they have in Christ. And as you know, we've been going through this book recognizing that Paul's goal is, and I put the verses at the top of your outline, he wants their hearts to be encouraged, to be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he wants them to not be deluded with plausible arguments. And tonight, we're going to look at some of those plausible arguments that the individuals were speaking to the Colossians, and we're also going to look at some plausible arguments that people kind of say to us, ways that directly or indirectly, things, people, whatever in our culture, things in our lives are kind of nagging at you saying, yeah, that's good, but it's not quite enough. You need this, or you need this one more thing. And so we are going to look at what it is that we really need And what are some of the messages that we're hearing that might sound plausible initially, but when we step back, we're like, ah, I'm not sure I really need that. So to kind of start off, let's read through our passage in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing because I just love reading the whole thing and getting it all in context. And then we're going to kind of pull back and see what is it we need. And then what are some of those things that people are telling us we need that in reality we really don't need? And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Lots of great stuff in there. It may seem overwhelming right now, but we're going to go back and walk through it specifically to see what it is that we need and what do we not need. The first thing is, what do we need? So we're kind of going to get the answer up front. It's very clear there in verse 6. What is it we need? We need to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. Act, walk, pursue, live consistent with Christ and who he is. Get to know him more. We need to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. That's our overall thought. That's our overall view, which shouldn't be a surprise if you've been able to be here with us in this study of Colossians. No surprise, it's coming back to Christ every time. That is what we need. Now things are going to come and have come at the Colossians and will come at us that will subtly and at times not so subtly attack that and say, yeah, that's good, but also, or yeah, you still need whatever. So that's what we're going to look at. What were those things to the Colossians, and what are some of those things that attack us? Interesting, as you read through and study this, a lot of things are mentioned in here, and we're going to talk about some of them specifically. As I read through all the commentaries, they all kind of agreed that some of the nuances of exactly what the lies were the Colossians were receiving, some of, those, um, some of those were pretty sure what those are, and some of them were not so sure. They all agreed, though, that the emphasis wasn't as much on what the specific lie was as it was to the fact that Christ was sufficient and he was the answer. So as we look through these, remember, the emphasis is not, okay, this was the specific lie they were hearing. The answer is, okay, Jesus is the answer, and let's kind of look at why and how who he is is enough. So the first thing we see that the Colossian Christians do not need is this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So whatever these things are, they're coming in, they're attempting to take the Colossians captive. They're deceptive, they're consistent with human tradition. Some things are coming in and attacking them. They don't need them. Well, why is that? Well, let's keep reading. We're going to see a lot of reasons why the Colossians did not need to be taken captive by the things they were hearing. Specifically, the first thing we see is because of Christ. Paul begins to explain to them, here's who Christ is and what you already have. Verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You already have this. You have Christ who is God. You don't need the human tradition and the other things that are coming to take you captive because you already have Christ. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him, I put that under because of what you have in Christ. First of all, there's who Christ is. Secondly, there's what you have in him. So here's Christ, he's God, you've already got him, and you've been filled in him. Because of him, you don't need anything else to fill you. You already have this. What else? Who is Christ? He's the head of all rule and authority. In other words, Some other rule, authority, somebody comes in and says, but you need, you can say, hey, wait a minute, I've already got the one who's the head of that. You don't need anything else because you already have that which is the source and the head and the authority of all of it. So you don't need to be taken captive because you already have that. Let's keep going. Verse 11, in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that's enough to confuse you right there. What in the world is it saying that you already have? Okay, I already have this. I don't even know what that is. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 17 or it's written on your verse sheet. I want to look for just a minute in the Old Testament, what is circumcision and why is it a big deal that I already have in Christ some other kind of circumcision? This seems a little odd. Okay. Let's look in Genesis 17, God is saying to Abraham, who's the head, the leader of God's chosen people, this nation of Israel. He says, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money surely shall surely be circumcised." So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. So this, obviously, circumcision was a big deal. And it was a sign to this Old Testament people of God that man was born sinful and needed cleansing. And every male that's a part of this community... ...was supposed to be circumcised. Now that we understand a little bit about what it was... ...who was circumcised, why it matters... ...it indicated they were sinful and needed cleansing... ...and to be a part of God's community... ...you needed this cleansing. Now, let's go back to Colossians... ...and pull out with me verse 11. In him you also were circumcised... ...with a circumcision made without hands... ...by putting off the body of the flesh... ...by the circumcision of Christ. In other words... It's painting this image based on what they knew from the Old Testament. And that is that I'm sinful and need cleansing. The Colossians were sinful and needed cleansing. Now, where did that circumcision, if you will, come from? It came from Christ. Christ came in and performed circumcision on my heart. It was sinful and it needed cleansing. Jesus came, took my sin... Died on the cross, was raised again, and gave me his righteousness. Do you see the image and what it's painting here? We see this circumcision of Christ has been given to us. It's explained a little bit more as we get going. Again, some of these images might seem confusing to read, but when you think about what they represent, it's incredibly significant. What about verse 12? It continues on talking about Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism... Referring again, Christ died and paid the penalty for my sin in which you were raised in him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, this image is being painted of sinful people, me, who needed cleansing. Christ is buried. He dies on the cross and is raised again to pay the penalty for my sin. And in being raised, I therefore am able to receive cleansing. Is that making a little more sense as we kind of start to put that together? So kind of step back with me. What is it the Colossian Christians already have in Christ? They've already been filled in him. They have a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh. Their sin has been taken away and they have been cleansed. They've been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith. They've been cleansed and raised from the dead. They already have this. So, as we keep going, what else is it that they already have in verse 13? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. In Christ, they already had life together with Christ. What else is a part of that? He's forgiven us all of our trespasses. Their sins had already been forgiven. Forgiveness of trespasses. What else did they already have? Their debt, that record of debt, has been canceled. The legal demands, the sin, the demand for my sin, which was death. That legal demand, which had to be paid, Jesus had already paid it. Their record of debt had already been canceled. Okay, that's a lot. So let's step back and think about where we are. Remember? We have Christ, and someone has come in and said, Okay, that's not quite enough. You also need this philosophy or this human tradition or whatever. And Paul is saying, Wait a minute, let's step back for a second. Let's look at what you already have. You already have Christ who is God. He is the head of all rule and authority. So anyone else, you don't need that. And look at all these other things you have in him. You have forgiveness, you have life. You have a canceled record of debt. You don't need to do anything else to make yourself right with God. You already have all of these things. So as people are coming at you, attacking you and your value, and telling you you need something else, do you need it? No. Why? Because you already have all of these things in Christ. Now, I emailed a group of um, individuals different ages, different life stages, emailed him about a month or so ago, and I said, hey, I want you to tell me what some of the messages are that you are constantly hearing that attack you, that are coming at you and are attacking your value. And so over the course of the lesson, I'm going to share a few of those with you. I probably had 8 to 10 people respond. And so everything I've mentioned mentioned tonight was mentioned by at least 3 of the people who responded and sometimes more. Because I want to begin to contextualize. We don't know exactly, at least from this verse, exactly what was attacking them. But something was coming and trying to take them captive and say, you need something else. So I'm going to pull out just some examples of at least what some friends of mine, what some of you have said, or some of the messages that you hear that begin to attack you and your value and make you think that you need something else to be okay or to be worthwhile. But when you step back, you go, wait a minute, that doesn't necessarily make sense. The first one that I want to share is one that was mentioned by several people, and it involves specifically what their um, family looks like, meaning married or not, kids or not, what their kids did or not, that they felt like they were more or less valued based on that. There were a lot of different nuances mentioned, but I want to read for you what one of them said and how she got very mixed messages, some from the world, some from some people at church, and how both of them were confusing and neither one of them were right. Here's what she says As a single woman, I would say that I feel conflicting judgment from within and outside the church. Within the church, I feel some pressure to get married and a little judged for still being single. For years, people have been asking my mom, "...is your daughter dating anyone?" And when my mom says no, they would say something like, "...well, I'm sure someone will come along soon." This would be the only question they would ask about me. Basically, I felt like it was only valuable if I was on the road to marriage and had a boyfriend to talk about. At the same time, I felt like because marriage is valued in our church culture, I must be broken or there's something wrong with me if I'm not married." So within the church, I felt more pressure to get married. Now here's what she says about outside the church. She says, outside the church, I felt some pressure not to get married and instead to pursue my career. Even in the last few weeks in talking with a fellow researcher, she had said several things about putting career first and not letting marriage hold her back. Even movies like Sex and the City and The Backup Plan advocate doing everything else you want to in life and then settling down and having kids and a family. Now, having kids or not having kids or being married or not being married, any of those in certain contexts is totally fine. But do you see how she was receiving mixed messages that were attacking her? You are not enough because either you are or aren't married. You are or aren't enough because you do or don't have kids. You are or aren't enough because your kids are or aren't. You are or aren't enough because you are divorced. You are or aren't enough. Do you see how all of those things begin to attack us? And we begin to place our value. Sometimes if we feel like we have measured up, we can feel more valuable. But then the next day when our kid does something crazy, we go, oh, great. Not value. Then your value totally plummets because your kid does something whatever. You know? I mean, that's, we, we kind of subtly or not so subtly buy into that. Is your value based at all before Christ in light of what he has done, set aside the legal demands, we're filled in him, we're alive in him, does your value have anything to do with whether you're married or not or have the perfect kid or not? No. But we'd all be lying if we didn't say sometimes we don't think so, right? We have to be reminded when all those messages about the way our family does or doesn't look that that is not the determining factor in our value. Our value is we know Jesus, and he loves and has forgiven us. And so as those messages hit us, it is very easy in an instant to be taken captive by that and for your brain and your emotions and for how you're viewing a situation to immediately run off the other direction, isn't it? But we don't need to be taken captive by that because our value has already been settled because of what Christ has done for us doesn't matter, some of those other external things. Okay, let's head back to the text. What else is it that Paul warns them? Hey, be careful. Don't be taken captive by this. He also says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. This is in verse 16. In questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, they some individuals apparently with a Jewish background, we're coming in and saying, hey, you need to observe the Sabbath and do it this way. And you need to go to this festival and offer this sacrifice. Some things that were very good and right in the Old Testament. They were supposed to observe those festivals. They were supposed to offer those sacrifices. Those were good things. However, verse 17 indicates something very significant for us. Why don't those things matter anymore? Verse 17... They're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Why don't they need those things? Because they already have Christ, who is the substance, and he is the something better. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and then 9 through 14, and it's going to explain for us a little bit more about this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near so verse 1 is referring to some of those you need to do these things that were important and a part of the old testament heritage otherwise they otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin meaning if they could go and offer one sacrifice why would they have to do it year after year after year? Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Constantly, when, consequently, when Christ came into the world, we're going to skip a little bit. It talks about some different things when Christ came into the world. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You don't have to do the sacrifices every year, every year as a reminder of sin. Because Jesus has come and done it once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Isn't this great? Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. (laughs) Paul is saying you don't need to perform these festivals or sacrifices or whatever those things are. Why? Because Christ has come. All those things were a shadow. They were pointing to Christ who was coming. You have the substance. You don't need the shadow anymore. You've already got the real deal. So one of the other lies or areas in which the women um, responded that they felt attacked and oftentimes devalued, and it's interesting to me, is that this one was the most frequently mentioned. And it's not like I sent out a bunch of samples and said, vote. I just said, hey, just tell me what you think. And this one was by far mentioned the most, which was interesting to me. And it was mentioned a little bit from the world's perspective, but primarily from the perspective of in the church, they felt like they constantly had to be perfect and to do all of these specific things to be seen worthy. This one was the one that was mentioned the most. Here are some of the things that were mentioned. We try to follow all these steps to attain favor in other Christians' eyes. We want to look the part. We forget that Christ's sacrifice canceled out those rules so that we don't have to follow steps A through Z in order to be considered worthy. Another person said this, In regard to this Colossian passage, I think about the woman who mistakes image for a genuine walk with the Lord. It seems enough for some to be perceived as having it all together. That can mean dressing well, having well-behaved kids, having a husband with a good job, showing up at church, even having some kind of position at church. It's the outer shell that I think often can mask a heart that isn't really soft to the Lord, but it's seen as one. I think some women don't even recognize they're doing this, but they fear rejections from others if they come across as something other than put together. The need that women expressed was that need that they only feel valued if they feel like they're living the part. Now, by no means were any of these women suggesting, it doesn't matter what you live or how you do, just go do whatever. Certainly, to follow the Lord and to work toward those things is great. But the need, not just in the world, to keep up a certain image, but the need within the church to feel like I'm only valued if I... And to do things so that other women would love them and treat them as valuable was the most significant thing mentioned. Is our value before Christ based on something we do? Are we loved or lovely because of something we do? Are the women sitting at your table loved because of something they have or haven't done today? or how they have or haven't fill in the blank. We are loved and valued and cared for because of Christ and who he is and what he has done and the lies that come at us that say, but you're not enough, but so-and-so sings better, teaches better, is up there, whatever it is. And again, those are all great things and I hope we're all doing them because we love Jesus. But... For those things to be the source of our value is kind of silly. We already have the substance. I already have Jesus who's the perfect servant. How is my service going to make me more valuable? It's not. It's a blessing. It's something I get to do and hopefully I love. But does it make me more valuable? Does Jesus love me more because I'm teaching you tonight than if I wasn't teaching you tonight? Am I more forgiven because I'm here or if I'm not here? No. The text just tells me I'm forgiven. My dad's been freed. I'm free. I don't want to be judged or taken captive by that. Let's keep going. A few more things we see with the Colossians. Paul says to them, it's number three on our outline in verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The Colossian Christians did not need to let anyone disqualify them by suggesting there was some other super special mystical thing they needed to experience to be valued or valuable or to have a relationship with Christ there was no new fangled fad they needed to try why? because they had Christ who is the head they had his nourishment and a growth that came from God they didn't need to go try this new whatever to be loved and valued and to have something they needed They already had it. No surprise, because it connects with that, and I've been using some of the words. One of the things that was mentioned is what they constantly feel like, um, or the women that emailed me back said, the Christian fads, the new podcast, the new book, the new seminar, the new whatever, and their concern was twofold. One, some of those things aren't scriptural, and so some people get taken up in them and they're not even biblical, but even the ones that are, while are good, and you can totally do them, and they weren't at all suggesting they were bad, they're not some secret magic trick. You don't have to have the new fad. If you haven't read the newest book by blank or newest Bible study by blank, and I'm not saying it's bad if you do, I'm just saying it's okay if you have it. In fact, someone said this. They said they're surprised at how often individuals are drawn away from searching for where the new it Christian fad is. And and she said this rather than the discipline of Bible study and obedience. The reality is, you got Jesus, you got the Bible, tells you to obey. I'm not saying some of those tools or whatever aren't a good thing. I'm just saying, we started off by saying what it was we needed, right? To be rooted and grounded in Christ. Do we need anything else? Maybe there'll be some tools that help you. Maybe not. But having read the new whatever, and I could say some of the ones that are real popular that are popping into my head, but then everyone's going to be embarrassed if they have it, and that's not the point. (laughs) The point is, whatever book it is that someone just told you you need to get, if you get it and read it, great. If you want to hang with your Bible and doing what it says, probably better. (laughs) In fact, it's for sure better. If If that book is a tool to help you do that, nifty. If it's not, you're okay with your Bible and prayer and the Holy Spirit, and it's all good. You're valued because of Christ. Okay, what's the last one we see here? Number four, verse 20. We see that some individuals were coming, coming in and suggesting the Colossians, you have to submit to these regulations. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Things according to human precepts and religion, and they were coming across as a self-made kind of religion that involved asceticism, severity to the body. And Paul says to them, you don't necessarily need a bunch of rules of what you need to taste, touch, or whatever to be real severe on your body because you already have in Christ the ability to stop the indulgences of the flesh. You don't necessarily need a bunch of external rules of you have to do this to be okay. The last thing I'll mention that was the one that was mentioned, and certainly this is a message we get from inside um, or from outside the church. Um, I mean, obviously, body image and what you look like and what you wear and all of that is a big one. That it's real easy to, even when you're going to church, you thought your outfit you just got yesterday was cool, and you walk in, and somebody else's look better, and all of a sudden you feel like your value's deflated. And it's not even inappropriate or immodest. You just Had bought into the lie that it mattered what you were wearing. And I'm not saying don't go buy some fun clothes and wear them. I'm just saying that that doesn't determine your value. That's a lie. Um, Someone else talked about how, um, or I'll just read this, I thought it was interesting. She said, Culture makes this the pinnacle of success. They worship youth and beauty, praising those who attain it and mocking those who don't. In parentheses, see, after any awards show, um, Joan Rivers ripping people's outfits to shreds. <laughs> so, I mean, even, I mean, there's this, you have to measure up, but even some of the people who allegedly are normally measuring up don't measure up. It's kind of a little cycle. The flip side is, um, and she said on the flip side, from within the church, sometimes some individuals um, kind of lay standards on how much you should or shouldn't have. She said someone had asked her one time why she wore wore makeup, and this individual said, I think it's vain, and he told her that she thought the face that God had given him wasn't good enough, that she needed to put makeup on it, and that was a bad idea, so no one should wear makeup. And she made this. She said, the challenge is when it becomes about the externals instead of the internals. Makeup is not evil. For me, it's a question of value. Am I valuable because of how I look or because of who I am in Christ? Again, I'm not saying... We can't and shouldn't wear makeup or go buy new clothes. I'm just saying it's not the source of our value. It's not the source of our identity. It's not the source of what we need to be okay. If we haven't, want to enjoy it, great. But it's not the source of what we need to be okay. So what's the lesson learned? The Colossian Christians didn't need anything but Jesus. Why? Because they already had everything they needed. They were valued. They were loved. They were forgiven. They had everything they needed. And the lies that were coming in and saying, yeah, but, or this one more, or "At" didn't need it. They already had everything they needed. In the same way, today's Christians don't need anything but Jesus. Why? Because we already have everything we need in Jesus. It's just a matter of living consistent with that. And remembering that. So what do we need? It's the very same thing the Colossians need. We need Jesus. We need to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. We need to remind ourselves, remind our hearts, all that we already have, instead of seeking it through something else. You should have on your table um, either who I am in Christ or who I am to Christ, that's just something for you to take home, to look up those verses, just additional reminders of what is it you already have. You already have Jesus. The reality is you and I need to be rooted in that more, to be reminded of what it is we already have because we don't need anything else. I haven't mentioned, but I think it's such a key phrase, at least for me, um, Obviously, I've spent most of the time talking about walking in Christ, being built up in Him, and established into the faith. The abounding in thanksgiving, I think, is also key. If you look at that sheet, if we think about all that we've already talked about, wow, is it amazing that we've been given that? Aren't you thankful that your value isn't based on how cute your outfit is or isn't compared to somebody (laughs) else sitting at your table? I mean, I kind of am. I mean, I'm glad that, for me to be valued and loved and cherished by the God of the universe, that it doesn't matter whether I have on makeup or not, because it's going to come off at some point. I mean, we already have everything we need, and that makes me incredibly thankful. There's a song that I ran across a couple months ago that even before I really started studying for this section became that like, number 11 repeat. You know how you know the song by the number? Because it's number 11, and it's on repeat. And that's pretty much the only song I listen to. And eventually, I you mean, know, I kind of sometimes listen to the rest of the CD, but you basically, number 11 repeat. So we are going to, I've invited Allison and Kinsey. Y'all can come on up. They're a part of our Converge worship team. And they are going to sing number 11 repeat. Um, <laughs> it's also a song by Christy Knuckles called Every, um, Already All I Need. You may or may not have heard it. Um, if you have heard it and know it and want to sing it at your table, that's totally fine. I was wanting to do it, and I've got the words on the screen so that you can see the words. And I just wanted them to sing this kind of in the spirit of, number one, reminding us what we already have. And um, number two, as you think about what they're singing and what you're reading, I hope that it would cause your heart to abound with thanksgiving of the realities of who Christ is and what we have.